Welcome back to Beyond the Uniform. I'm Justin Asiri, and my goal is to help members of the armed forces succeed in their post-service career and life. Today is episode number 398, founding four successful tech startups with Lehman Baird. Yeah, it's just a blessing. I, I can't say that I was smart 21 years ago and my company was acquired because I did such a great job. Uh, all I can say is that we were just blessed to have it work. We poured everything we could into the company and it did end up getting uh, acquired. There were lots of bumps in the road. We had to pivot to totally different ways of doing things, but uh, we ended up, that one ended up being acquired by a Fortune 500 company. I would say to an aspiring entrepreneur, that is not the norm. It does not matter how wonderful you are. You cannot guarantee that or even make it better than even odds. Most likely, your company will fail and you'll start another one. You'll be better at it. And it will fail and you'll start another one. You'll be better at it. And after a while, you will end up with companies that don't fail. I'm so grateful for Lehman's time. I reached out to him cold when I found him on LinkedIn. And um, I think there's a couple of reasons why you're going to like this episode. First of all, he runs a company and is co-founder and chief scientist. It's called Hedera. It is in the blockchain space, uh, which I still understand so little about and still know there are so many possibilities there. He talks about how his career that started at the Air Force Academy led him to that point. Um, one thing I really love, though, about my conversation with Lehman is that he's very humble for someone who has founded four incredibly successful companies. And despite having these four successes under his belt, he talks in this interview about how much um, luck plays a role. And like anything else, entrepreneurship is a skill that over time, if you fail and keep on trying, you can be smart and build up. Uh, a skill set that can help you increase your chances of success. He talks about how he approaches interactions in business where it's not zero sum, where he tries to make it a win for himself and whoever he's working with. Um, he talks about how he found his co-founder that he uh, met while in the Air Force and has co-founded four different companies with and tells an incredible story about how uh, when his co-founder uh, went to turn down his job, how his boss offered his promotion and the boss ended up investing in their company instead. So tons of great stories here. He does come from a very technical background. He's not only the chief technology officer, but the chief scientist of his company, Hedera. And so you get a different lens. I think oftentimes on the show, we have someone with more of a pure play business background, and he brings a tech perspective, including his PhD in computer science and his time teaching computer science at the Air Force Academy. As always, at beyondtheuniform.org, you'll find show notes with links to everything we discuss, as well as 397 other episodes just like this one. So with that, let's dive into my conversation with Lehman. Well, joining me today in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, my guest is Lehman Baird. Lehman, welcome to Beyond the Uniform. Oh, thanks. It's good to be here. I want to give listeners a brief bio. Uh, Lehman is the inventor of the Hashgraph Distributed Consensus Algorithm, and he's the co-founder and chief scientist of Hedera. Uh, Lehman is a graduate of the U.S. Air Force Academy. He was a full professor of computer science at the Academy and was on the faculty for eight years. He has been the co-founder of several startups, including two identity-related startups, both of which were acquired. He received his Ph.D. in computer science from Carnegie Mellon University and has multiple patents and publications in peer-reviewed journals and conferences in computer security, machine learning, and mathematics. Maybe um, 
Actually, Lehman, we'll, we'll break things up. Maybe to start things off, let's start with where you're at now. So let's say you're walking down the streets and you ran into another Air Force grad and, and they said, oh, man, Lehman, what is it that you do for a living? How, how do you answer that? Yeah, so I have a company that does ledgers, distributed ledger technology, which is where a bunch of computers all come to an agreement on things even if some of them are untrustworthy and even run by a bad guy, you can trust the group as a whole because they all come to agreement together. If you've ever heard of Bitcoin, it's one of these things or Ethereum, uh, except that we're a lot faster and a lot more secure, but it's that kind of thing. And we'll talk about your career leading up to this point, but what was the genesis of the company? Like when, when did you have this idea and then actually follow that idea? <laughs> Every company that we start has a different genesis. This one was just a math problem. Um, I like to do math problems for fun. Um, I like computer science and coming up with algorithms for things. And so just for some reason, there's certain math problems that kind of latch on to me and I work on them for years or decades and I never solve them. And occasionally I solve one. Well, this is one like that. Would it be possible for a bunch of computers to come to agreement with super secure, high security, but also extremely fast? I just thought that was a fun problem. And around 2012, I started working on it. I would work on these. It's like all my problems that I work on. I just I would work on it really hard for a long time and convince myself, you know what? It's actually impossible. You can either be secure or you can be fast, but you can't be both. And I'd set it aside. And then it would just after a while, come back and haunt me again and gnaw at me. And I'd have to pick it up and deal with it and work on it for a few days and say, no, here's really why it's true. You cannot be fast and secure at the same time. And this went on for years. I, I have lots of problems I do just for fun like that. Except in 2015, I was playing with it and I realized if you just add two little notes to every message you send, then you get this super high security for free while running at the extreme speed, basically the speed of the Internet. And so you can do fast and secure at the same time. And uh, I told my business partner, Mance, about this. We started a bunch of things together. And he said, oh, yeah, that's cool. Let's start a company. And so we did. And um, and that was the start of a company for doing these these blockchains, these distributed ledgers privately, where a group would, of people would run their own, but not let the rest of the world use it. And after a year of showing traction on people buying that, we then said, ah, let's start a company now to do it for public. And that's what Hedera is, is the public ledger. And we set kind of an ambitious goal, and that's what we've been doing. That's so incredible. I'm just curious because I think that's such an incredible asset, this sense of like being curious, looking at a problem and just being willing to set it down and come back to it. Is that something that you see as you look back on your life, like when you were at the academy or when you were even younger? Was that how you would kind of process information is just kind of deep diving on something and then just kind of revisiting it if it's pertinent or is that like part of your DNA? Oh, it's part of my DNA. I love games and puzzles. Um, those are just fun. I just do that kind of thing for fun. I've been working on math problems. I remember in high school inventing an algorithm that years later I learned was a real algorithm. that had some guy's name attached to it because it's really cool. But, you know, I just thought it was fun. It's fun to play with problems and it's fun when you solve them. I enjoyed playing, you know, pa pencil and paper games and figuring out strategies and all that stuff is just fun. And before you rewind the clock a little bit to your journey here from the Air Force, could you give listeners just a sense of whatever you're comfortable sharing about Hedera, a sense of the stage you're at or how big you are? Because you guys have been very, very successful, and I want them to understand the context of that. So Hedera is a public ledger. It's all about trust. And so what we said from the beginning was 
This won't just be an ordinary company. What we're going to try to do is get, maybe it was a crazy goal, it gets some of the world's very largest corporations to jointly own and run and govern Hedera. Uh, we were actually inspired by the way Visa was first uh, designed as an inside holding company. And the idea was that you had a bunch of banks that jointly owned it and ran it and controlled it. And such a thing is, is maybe a little bit ambitious to try to do. But we ended up, for whatever reason, deciding to try to do it. And we wanted really the biggest companies in the world to each own one equal fraction of Hedera and to together control what it does, make all the decisions about it, and even to have term limits where they can't stay there forever, that after two terms, six years, they have to leave and someone else comes in. And so this is what we did. We said we're going to build this thing. It has a cool technology. It's fast and secure. We want this kind of governance so that people can truly trust the ledger. And uh, we're the most used ledger now. It apparently has worked. But who did we get? So we now have on our, the 21 companies that we have, we're going for 39, but right now we have 21. It includes companies you might have heard of, like Google and IBM and Boeing and LG Electronics and Shinhan, the largest or the oldest bank in South Korea, or Standard Bank, the biggest bank in all of Africa, or Deutsche Telekom is the largest telecommunications company in all of Europe or Tata Communications, enormous communications company in India, or DLA Piper, one of the largest legal firms on the planet. Uh, we have all sorts of people. Uh, Nomura is one of the largest financial institutions in Japan. We have FPOS is a payments processor in uh, Australia. It's a household name. Everybody knows the name FPOS. Uh, these are these are our council members. We have 21 of them. I didn't even mention them all. And, and I'm sorry, not just companies. Uh, University College of London is one of the top 10 universities in the world, according to many lists. Uh, they're one of our council members. So it isn't just corporations. It's also universities. And we are going in every case for one of the very top in the world. We're even in the blockchain world. One of the major, major players in the blockchain world is uh, Chainlink. And uh, we have them. And so we, we even have even people from the blockchain world that are big that maybe you haven't heard of, but we have them as well. Uh, and so this is what we ended up doing. We ended up building a company that is jointly owned and run and controlled and guided by this governance uh, group, the governance council. And we meet every other month and and we have total transparency. The meeting minutes from all of our meetings are published to the world and the whole world can see it. So everybody knows what we're talking about, how we make our decisions, what the arguments were for and against, it's all out in the open. You know, two things that stand out to me. One is I always love having fellow entrepreneurs on the show because it shows that you can have an idea and create something new. But I think beyond that, what you and your company are illustrating is when you build something new, you can build it the way that you want. And I think it's great, this sense of like having these different organizations that you really trust and value, having them have a stake and a voice in what you're doing is powerful. Like there's not many organizations I can think of that do that. And then second of all, I, I'm just a big fan of authenticity and alignment and transparency. And I respect and admire how you have built that into the foundations of your company and the fact that your minutes are publicly available. It just it seems so aligned with what seems like your mission as a company. And I think that's great to see that flavor permeate all the different pieces of your organization. Oh, you're right. And you said build it in the foundation. These ledgers like Bitcoin or Ethereum or Hedera are all about trust. 
But to have trust, you need transparent governance, and you cannot tack it on later. The other ledgers have demonstrated just really you can't go back and fix that. You have to have done that at the very beginning. And right now, we're the only ledger that has a council like this, that these kinds of names are jointly running it and showing everyone what they're doing. It becomes hard once you've created one of these ledgers to go back and retroactively try to retrofit it to be transparent and secure and, and well-governed like that. You really have to build it in at the beginning. And that's true. When you start a company, there's a lot you can change later, but then there's some things that just get baked in at the bottom layer. And our goal from the very beginning was to build a company that's going to be around for a 100 years. We are building a utility for the whole planet to use. And everything we've done has been governed by what is the right way to do this so that it will last for a 100 years, not just you know make a quick buck or do something really fast. It's always been on the long the long view has always been the goal. This is your fourth company, and you've been very successful. I'm curious, you know, the, the, what I'm really appreciating about your vision is, one, very big, 100-year company, but also the foresight where you're saying, like, we want to construct the company right from the beginning. Would that have been possible with your very first company, or is this are those both byproducts of, like, this is your fourth time around, you have that foresight, you have bigger vision, you want to have a bigger impact? I knew so little of my first company. <laughs> I started my <laughs> first company. I didn't know anything. It is, it is just funny looking back. It's, what, 21 years ago? I Wow, did I not know anything. No. It's hard to know have a good vision when you don't really understand where you can go and where you should go and how you can go and what the world really looks like. Um, I don't know. If you don't understand all of that, um, you can't have a grandiose vision. But what you can do is say, we're going to pivot quickly. And as we learn, we will do things differently. And I think that's the key to being a, a new entrepreneur is just do, take, do everything you can to figure out, get in as much advice as you can. And if you need to pivot, pivot quickly. And and I want to I want to spend more of our time on Hedera and your companies leading up there. But could you give listeners just kind of like the brief synopsis of, you know, from the Air Force Academy until I think was your first company Trio Security? It was. So from the Air Force Academy to Trio Security, what was if this was like a movie, what's occurring that's giving you the courage, knowledge or insight to jump off from, you know, you know, my Naval Academy was very secure for me. It's like a, it's, it's such a secure thing and entrepreneurship is so insecure. So I'm just kind of curious what transpired from the Air Force Academy until your first company that you had the courage to take that. <laughs> you say until they're at the same time. Um, so I'm still in the Air Force up until 2009. My first company was in 2000. Oh, wow. So for, you know, a decade there, almost a decade, I was in the Air Force and starting companies. Wow. Uh, yeah. And my business partner also was in the Air Force. Uh, he worked with me in research labs, and he taught at the Air Force Academy, and he ran um, – you ever seen War Games, the movie? Yeah, the, the computer of course, simulation. Matthew Broderick. Yep. <laughs> yes, but it's all about, you know, NORAD having this computer simulation and so on. He basically ran that. He was running wow. that computer simulator uh, for the Missile Defense Agency. So he was an Air Force guy, too. He got out earlier than I did. So when we started our first company – Interesting question. I don't remember if he was still in or not, but if not, he was, he was almost about to get out. He got out pretty quickly and I stayed in. So you could say maybe he was taking more risks than I was. I was just beating my head against a brick wall trying to do two full-time jobs, more than full-time jobs at the same time. And he took real risks 
Um, I got to tell you a story. It's not about me. It's about my other entrepreneur friend. You want to hear what, what Nance did with our Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. So the third company was Swirls. This was the private ledger. This is when we solved the math problem. We're going to go start a company. Nance gets excited. He says, hey, let's start a third company. Let's do one to do these ledgers. We'll do them as private ledgers because obviously you can't just start with a public ledger. Uh, we started with a private one to, to prove out that it works and that we can get people to use it. And so he said, but wait a second, I have a really nice job right now. And so Nance is working for this company. He is in charge of a lot. He goes into the CEO. He schedules a meeting with the CEO to basically say, I'm going to leave. He walks in there and the CEO doesn't even let him get a word out. And because he, he kind of suspects Mance is a pretty good guy. He kind of suspected Mance wasn't just going to be an employee forever. And so before Mance can say anything, he says, I want to promote you to a vice president position. It'll be vice president of marketing, which is arguably the best vice president in the company. You have a great future. I want to give you a huge promotion. I really love you, but I need you to say yes or no. Can I give you this promotion? And Mance realizes I kind of on the spot have to make a decision for the rest of my life. Do I take a huge promotion and a really good thing, or do I give it all up and go start this stupid company with Lehman and see what happens? And he didn't have a day to decide. He had his second to decide. And Mance decided, I got to go for it. I've got to do it. I've got to try this. We're going to start a company with Lehman. And so he told his boss, oh, I appreciate the, the offer, but let me show you what I have for you. And he shows him the idea and he says, Lehman and I are going to start a company. And his boss says, yeah, I knew you were going to do something like that. But wow, this thing looks good. In fact, I think it's historic. In fact, he made men stop so he could go film the presentation. Oh, wow. And then he invested. Their company invested in Swirls. <laughs> so he lose his best employee. Wow. He actually gave his investment to his best employee who just left. Um, <laughs> that's a risk. Have you done all four companies with Manson? Wow. I have. And before that, we were research scientists together for a decade and published lots of research papers together doing research. Just we were in different states, just doing it over the phone and so on. We were in the same office for six months. Do you have any advice? I feel like oftentimes the question I get is like whether to do a venture alone or with a partner. And if with a partner, how on earth do you vet that person? Like I've seen many companies fractured because the partnership wasn't sound and you've demonstrated four different times and four highly, what I'm imagining is highly stressful situations, the ability to make it work. What advice do you have for listeners about selecting a co-founder? Okay. So the one thing that every entrepreneur I've ever talked to agrees on is that what makes a company is not that you had a cool idea or cool technology. It's the people. And every investor, every VC will tell you, I don't invest in a technology. I invest in the team. It is entirely down to the team. <laughs> everything else is important. Everything you do is important. It's the nature of entrepreneurship. But, but everything pales in comparison to the team that you have. And so <laughs> you've got to have the right team. Uh, how do you find such people? I, I don't know. It was our number one priority in building these companies. And somehow in Hedera, we have an amazing team. And I'm not just saying that because you're it's traditional. You're supposed to say that. No, I am shocked at how good the people are that we have in Hedera. And it was our number one goal to get that kind of person. I don't know how we got them. This is the truth. Uh, actually, Zenobia's on the call right now. She is wonderful. Uh, just the team that we have, it blows me away. And, and getting the right co-founder, of course, <laughs> I guess is even more important. Uh, Nance and I started working together in 1994. 
I'm a research scientist in the Air Force lab. I am a young captain. Uh, no, I'm a young first lieutenant to begin with. I forgot whether I pinned on, you know, I made captain before Navy people make captain. I made it faster. But you know what? They get paid more as captain than I did as captain. I don't understand. So Mance and I were working together and we clicked. We worked really well together. And we were both good at technical things and at business things. And we, um, the friendship just grew over the years, but also our ability to work together grew over the years. And after 21 years, let me tell you, we work really well together. And this doesn't mean you agree on everything. That would be horrible. You just do it all yourself then. Uh, we disagree on lots of things and we work through them. And you know how to work through them and how to come to answers that are probably better than either of us alone would have come up with. Mm. And so it is fantastic. I cannot imagine starting companies without having partners that are really good and Usually you're talking about a team of two or three people. Now, there are cases where you could say it really was one person. I think Elon Musk, although he has a great team, you know, you could really say he did it. Uh, but I think there's a lot of cases where you see there's either two or three people that really are the core that make the company. And if you're a VC, this is who a venture capitalist who invests in companies. This is what you invest in is you try to find the team. And then you try to make sure that those two or three people were really good at building a good team around them. So you said, how do you find such people? I don't know. You have to have been working with someone you were convinced is such a person. Um, it's not like you put a want ad in the newspaper and say, wanted co co-founder to create something new with me. I guess you can do that, but it's the most important decision you're going to make in comparison to everything else. Uh, a lot of people do go into business with family, and um, although it puts strains on it, it's, it's not a bad thing. Um, I've heard people say, don't do it with a friend. Well, I think you need to kind of learn to be friends with the people you're doing it with. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I love that. Do you have a sense now that this is your fourth company, what's different in you, in your approach as an entrepreneur now compared to your, your first couple of companies? It's interesting. So of course I know a lot more. Um, and you are always asking questions. What does the market need? What would the market respond to? If we were to do this, what would the response be? This is always what you're talking about. And you're constantly selling or negotiating. When you're hiring someone, you're trying to convince them to join you and they're trying to convince you to hire them. When you're going to someone to build on top of your platform, you're trying to convince them to build on top of it. For a council member, we're trying to convince them to become a council member. For investing, you know, we got 125 million in the very first year when we started. Uh, we had to convince the investors to invest and we're still doing that. Everything you're doing, even within the team, is you're convincing people of things. You know, it's all in some sense sales or in some sense negotiations or in some sense deciding things together. And the more you understand, the better that works. You really need to understand what is it this person's going to need and what are they going to want and what's, what will be a win-win. And I, I noticed Mance and I both tend to have a great tendency to try to find the win-win. Um, nothing is a zero-sum game. You're not playing chess where if I win, you lose. Yeah, it's always a non-zero-sum game where let's find a way where we both win. And uh, and that's that's the way you win overall. And so I would say that my approach maybe hasn't changed. But, boy, I was stupid 21 years ago. Uh, I, I think I had, well, I'm stupid now. But I, I think I understand a little bit more about things. And so probably I'm doing it better. But I did understand then it's the people that are important. It's being able to figure out what the real need of the world is. No one's going to buy something because it's a cool thing. They're going to buy it because they need it. And, you know, uh, Steve Jobs was brilliant at discovering what you want before you even know you want it. That's what we're talking about. Figuring out what does the market really need right now? 
If you build a widget and there's already 10,000 widgets for sale out there and they're all perfectly good, you could say, well, my widget really is 3% better. No one cares. Why would they care? You need to find a pain point that they aren't aware of. So I knew all of this 21 years ago. I actually did. But to actually do that, you have to know a lot about the outside world. And maybe I know more now than I did 21 years ago. I don't know. I really like that. I like those two pieces of focusing on something win-win and dropping this zero-sum approach. I can get in that habit of viewing things from that uh, zero-sum perspective. And then I also like how you're underscoring the importance of finding the need. You know, and I, I see that with a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs sometimes is it's like a great idea, but it's not really a felt pain point. And I think that's a, a great thing for people to remember. Um, I also wanted to ask you, because I've had entrepreneurs on the show before, I, I'm pretty confident you're the first chief scientist. And I'm curious for um, listeners, if you can paint the picture of what what do you do in that? Like, what is your day to day life look like? Are you tinkering or what what sort of activities do you do throughout the day? OK, so I'm also chief technology officer, CTO. And the pattern you most often find is if there's two people that start, start a series of companies, most office, often what you'll find is one of them is CEO and one is CTO. That's a very common pattern that you'll see. It's complementary skill sets, and you, there's, a, there's more work they want for one person to do. It's a pretty nice way of dividing the work in half, the CEO stuff and the CTO stuff. So you always have, or in other words, you have someone normal like men, so you have a geek like me. That's, you know, that's what we're talking about. Um, so it's very common to have that. In my case, I also have the title of chief scientist, and I'm, I'm really doing both kinds of things. We're still a startup. We have, I don't know, 50 people or so. Um, but we're still very much in the startup mode. So what am I doing every day? I am amazed at how many different things I do. Sometimes that's what's frustrating. I spend the whole day on the phone all day, and I'm walking in circles in my living room for five or ten miles a day, which is healthy, but it's amazing. So what am I doing? There is the architecture of what is it we should be building. Turns out this whole stuff with ledgers turns out to be extremely complicated. And the market is extremely complicated. The whole world of blockchain is, is really complicated. And so I'm constantly designing, well, what should we do? What features should we be offering? And we keep adding new features to our ledger. The way a ledger works is these computers come to agreement. But users then connect to the computers and do a transaction. They say, okay, I'll pay you a little bit, a tiny fraction of a cent, and then I want you to run a little program for me or to transfer a token for me or to um, timestamp and record forever a message for me. These are the things that you're doing, and we're constantly adding new services to this. And I'm designing the, the new services should be and how they should be designed. And then underneath that, it's the architecture of the software itself. And then there's algorithms. I'm constantly having to invent new algorithms, new ways for the computer to do things. So we have all of that stuff. And then there's all of the hiring and deciding who we need to get. So we have a cryptographer, we have engineering people, and we have biz dev, business development people, and we have marketing people. And I'm trying to figure out who do we need to hire now and who do we need to, you know, how do we interview them and figure out whether they're good or not. And then we have all these strategic decisions that we're making as a company. How do we deal in our field? How do you deal with the regulators? How do we deal with the SEC and the CFTC and the Treasury and uh, the FTC, uh, Congress? How do we deal with all of these regulators and how are we talking to them and how are we making decisions that will make them happy and so on? And we're making strategic decisions about the direction our company is going for all of these. And then there's how do we deal with the council? And so I'm constantly having meetings with the council and talking with them 
Every other month, I give briefings to the council as a whole, and then every other week, I'm giving briefings to these committees, and we have lots of council committees that are made up of the council members, and I chair two of those. And so I'm constantly having to manage that and make sure they get involved and that they're doing things and that they're um, happy and that they're getting all the information they need and that the committees are moving smoothly and are voting on the things they need to vote for and getting done the things they need to get done for us to be able to move forward. And then I'm giving lots of interviews to people like you. And I really appreciate you having me on. That, that's I appreciate that. But I'm constantly doing that. And then I'm constantly writing and I'm constantly working on math proofs. Uh, when you invent new algorithms, you also have to prove that they're right. Otherwise, you shouldn't use them. You should never use an algorithm until you have mathematically proved for the math proof that it's right. And our core math proof, we even had proved by a computer. I had to prove the math proof. And then I worked with a professor at Carnegie Mellon who had a computer check the proof to prove that it's right. So I'm constantly doing that, doing math proofs and, and dealing with people like him who are working on that. And then dealing with problems as they come up and dealing with issues. And then you have to um, act as a as a peacemaker to get people to get along, you know, and to work out misunderstandings that happen. And, and then we have talks to the whole company to try to encourage the whole company. We worry about the morale of the company. And are they engaged in a way that is satisfying to them? So it's morale in that we have parties. That's important. But it's also morale in the sense, do they feel like they are actually changing the world? Are they contributing a real thing to the company? Or do they feel like they're just making coffee for the people that are actually changing the world? And in our company, especially when we're so lean, we have every single person is directly contributing to our ability to change the world. And they understand the vision to change the world. And so I'm constantly working to make sure everyone's doing that. I have started to scratch the surface of what I do. The truth is every day is different. I'm actually doing totally different things every day. The only common thread is it's always problem solving and it's always dealing with people and trying to help them to understand and to agree and to work out what would be best for both of us. It's those two things. It's dealing with people and solving problems. That's what I do. I'll say in what 398 episodes, that might be the best answer to that question I've heard. And I'm not just appreciating the nuance you gave listeners of the variety and incredible diversity of skill sets that are required in your role, but I think it really comes through for me how deliberate and intentional when you're talking about morale and making sure people are invested and feel like you're having this impact. It's not just, you know, it doesn't feel like you're just checking things off. Like I feel like in all of these areas, you're really intentional. And one thing I wanted to ask is oftentimes listeners ask us about work-life balance. And I feel so overwhelmed hearing that stuff. Do you think it's possible as an entrepreneur to have a sense of work-life balance, like all the things you're naming, it seems like that there's no way to get around the overwhelming amount of time it will take to do all of those things. So I'm curious for our listeners considering entrepreneurship, what is your thoughts on work-life balance? Is that possible in this career path? Having a life? I've, I've heard of that. Some people do that, don't they? <laughs> I, I, I've heard of that. Yeah. So when I talk to entrepreneur classes, what I say is entrepreneurial is great. You can have a work-life balance. You can actually have a good life. It is a good thing. But you do need to understand that it is an all-consuming thing that takes up an enormous fraction of your life and that every benefit has a cost. And there is a huge cost to being an entrepreneur. And that is the time. Now, I am single. and don't have any kids. That helps. I can devote a lot of time to these things. But I do other things, too. I have friends and I teach Bible studies and I am involved with my nephews and nieces and I am um, 
involved in mentoring people. I do other things. And I still do a lot of math just for fun. And I watch Netflix just for fun. And I listen to books and things and, you know, not just important books like you should be listening to, but, you know, science fiction and stuff. Um, so I, I do other things. I do have a life. But let me be honest. If you're going to be a successful entrepreneur during those early years, you're going to be really engaged in building this thing you're building and in creating something of real value to the world. And it is going to take an enormous amount of your time. And so Mance and I do fight, Mance even more, fights to make sure that he does have time with his family and takes care of them. And I don't think they have felt left out. But this is the biggest cost to being an entrepreneur. And think about it carefully. Maybe you shouldn't be an entrepreneur. You know, maybe you really, this isn't the right balance. It doesn't last forever, but it lasts through the startup phase, which is, you know, five years of your life. And then if you're a serial entrepreneur, well, it lasts forever. <laughs> but... Mm. Um, but it is true. And actually, we take breaks between companies. So you get some life in between your companies, too. But but honestly, during the first five years of a company, it is an all-consuming thing. And you have to fight to have any time at all for the important things in life. Your entrepreneurship is not the most important thing in life. Building your company is not the most important thing in life. But it is going to be the most time-consuming thing in your life for five years or whatever. You need to think about that before you decide to do it. If you do decide to do it, oh, there's a joy in building something. Uh, it's just... It's, it's a, a wonderful thing to do, and, and I am fully in favor of it. But I would say count the cost. Think very carefully about whether it's the right thing for you or not. Maybe it isn't. And I know we're, we're getting shorter on time, but I, I did want to ask, there's very few people I meet that can point to four successful companies. You know, even, you know, even wildly successful entrepreneurs, they have hiccups. They have, you know, they strike out. And I'm thinking, you know, I think at least a third of our audience aspires at some point to become an entrepreneur. What is it that you think has been most helpful for your success? Or you could take that as either, you know, what has helped you be successful or advice for aspiring entrepreneurs. But I'm just trying to tease out what might have made the difference in your own journey. Um, <laughs> it's just a blessing. I, I can't say that I was smart 21 years ago and my company was acquired because I did such a great job. Uh, all I can say is that we were just blessed to have it work. We poured everything we could into the company, and it did end up getting uh, acquired. There were lots of bumps in the road. We had to pivot to totally different ways of doing things, but uh, we ended up that one ended up being acquired by a Fortune 500 company. I would say to an aspiring entrepreneur, that is not the norm. It does not matter how wonderful you are. You cannot guarantee that or even make it better than even odds. Most likely, your company will fail, and you'll start another one. You'll be better at it. And it will fail, and then you'll start another one, and you'll be better at it. And after a while, you will end up with companies that don't fail. That's the far more likely path. And um, and so just take that as life. Okay, well, you got to you got to do this thing. It was a privilege to be able to do it, and then it failed. Now start your next one and do better. And maybe doing better means picking a better pain point to have attacked, rather than just saying I managed the books better and I hired better people. Maybe you just the idea of what you're going to pursue should be better. But I would say that I can't attribute my success to anything I've done. What I can say is I've done everything I can to make success more likely. And then it's just a blessing if it happens. And if it doesn't, yeah, that's life. Don't let that ruin you. Just keep going. I, I love that. I do everything I can to make, make success more likely. And I, what I'm most appreciating that is of, of everyone I've interviewed, you, you probably have the best right to just uh, came, claim to be God's gift to entrepreneurship. But the portrait that you portray or that I take away from what you just said is, it is a skill. Like, you know, if you fail, you learn, you get smarter. You, it's like anything else. You have to 
keep on growing and, and building. I want to be respectful of your time, but I, I always like to have the last question be open-ended. And, and you can take this one of two ways. Either what is something that I didn't ask about that you want to share with listeners, especially, you know, you teach so many entrepreneurs, you're a teacher by background. Um, so anything we didn't cover that you want to share or just any final words of wisdom that you want to leave with listeners? I would say that you should be grateful and show that gratitude to the people that help you, like your family or whatever, and the people in your company, because they really are the ones building it, but also to your users and customers and the people that you are interacting with, that you are doing this company for. And you should keep in mind that you are a servant of them, that you are doing this to make the world better, which means you're trying to help the people in the world. And you are trying to make a company that is good for the people that are in the company and really just view that it's about others and not about yourself. And then when things go bad, you know, well, that's life. Don't don't let that ruin you. And so just view it as something you are doing for others. Don't do it for yourself. I think that's so great, because if some portion of success is arbitrary, if you're doing everything you can to make the world a better life and the people in your company's lives better, even if it fails, you know, you've there's some good that comes out of it. It's not just this binary success or failure. Well, thank you, Lehman, so much for your time. I know there are so many demands on your time and really appreciate your time carving out for uh, Beyond the Uniform today. Oh, thanks a lot. It's been wonderful talking with you. I've enjoyed it. Thanks. Surface, surface, surface. <laughs> Beyond the Uniform is written and produced by me, Justin Asiri, with the help from our chief of staff, Steve Bain, our editor, Lex Brown, and our head of social media, Janelle Hanf. We are an all-volunteer organization and would greatly appreciate your help in any of the following ways. First of all, spread the word. Beyond the Uniform has over 380 podcast episodes and 15 on-demand webinars, all offered for free. Help us spread the word on social media, at military bases, or whatever gets this resource in front of the men and women who need it. Positive reviews on iTunes go a long way towards this as well. Second of all, sponsorship. Beyond the Uniform relies on sponsorship to keep us going. There is so much more we'd like to do, but just don't have nearly the resources to do it. If you know of a company that would advertise in any way with Beyond the Uniform, please send them our way. Third of all, donations. If you're in a financial position to donate, you can find more information on the support section of our website. At our website, beyondtheuniform.org, you'll find over 380 episodes categorized by industry, functional role, and more. You'll also find both free and for-purchase resources that take a deeper dive on topics related to career growth. Thank you for your support as we aim to help members of the military and their families thrive in their post-military career in life.